But we're in Romans 2, verses 17 to 29 today. So let's go ahead and pray, and then we'll get right into our text. Lord, we ask for you to glorify your great name by casting light upon your word and applying it by your spirit to our lives, that we would walk before you in holiness and righteousness all our days. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, Romans chapter 2, starting in verse 17. But if you bear the name Jew and rely upon the law and boast in God and know his will and approve the things that are essential, being instructed out of the law, and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and of truth. You, therefore, who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that one shall not steal, do you steal? You who say that one should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, through your breaking the law, do you dishonor God? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, just as it is written. For indeed, circumcision is of value if you practice the law. But if you are a transgressor of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. So if the uncircumcised man keeps the requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? And he who is physically uncircumcised, If he keeps the law, will he not judge you, who, though having the letter of the law and circumcision, are a transgressor of the law? For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from men, but from God." You know, it seems like just about everyone thinks that they're going to heaven. I have asked various questions probably hundreds of times. I've interviewed people and I've asked them the question, if you were to die today, would you go to heaven or hell? And I think I might have heard one or two people and all those people that I have asked this question say, yeah, I think I'd probably go to hell. But I would say a safe guess is that 99% of people think that they're going to heaven. The problem is Jesus said that narrow is the gate and narrow is the way that leads to life and few are those who find it. So someone is not telling the truth. Either Jesus is lying when he said that only few find the way to life or people are deceived. They think they're going to heaven and they're not. Everyone seems to have a hope. But the question is, is the hope that they have of heaven well-grounded? Or will it fail them when they stand before God on Judgment Day? And that's what we're going to be looking at today. Because the Jews had a particular hope that God would accept them and that they would be accepted into heaven. What Paul is going to do in this, this section of Romans is he's going to dismantle their hope and he's going to tear it out from underneath their feet and show them that it's not a well-grounded hope and that it will not save in the day of judgment. Um, so everyone's got some kind of a hope. Some people think, well, God's just too good to punish people in hell forever. God would never do that. So I'm fine. I'm secure. Some people think, well, I'm a religious person. 
So if anybody's going to make it to heaven, surely it would be me. But the answer that you will get most of the time, I don't know, probably nine out of ten times is, I'm going to heaven because I'm a good person. And what does that tell you? Is there hope in themselves or in Christ? It's in themselves, in their supposed goodness before God. The Jews' answer was, I am going to be okay. I'm secure because of my knowledge of the law, verses 17 to 24, and the fact that I've been circumcised, verses 25 to 29. And because I know the law, I possess the law, I know the law, I even teach the law, and because I've been circumcised, I'm fine. I have nothing to worry about. I am safe and secure in the day of judgment. Now, in Romans chapters 1, 2, and 3, Paul is like a master prosecuting attorney. And he's taking one group, one by one, and he's talking to them, and he's ripping up the false hopes that they have. He's showing that these groups are guilty before God, and that they have no excuse, and that they deserve the wrath of God. Now, he's done that to the Gentile in chapter 1. Verses 18 to 32, remember it says that they had a knowledge of God through creation. But instead of giving thanks to God and honoring God, what do they do? They suppress the truth. They hold that truth down. They will not honor God. They will not give thanks to God. Instead, they exchange the glory of the incorruptible God for images in the form of corruptible man and animals. And they worship the creation rather than the creator who's blessed forever. And so what does God do? He gives them over to degrading passions and to impurity and to a depraved mind. And they commit sins like homosexuality, which is spelled out in chapter 1. And they go in this spiraling downhill venture. So the Gentiles with that excuse, the Gentile is guilty, the Gentiles under the wrath of God. But then we come to chapter 2. And it starts off in verse 1 by saying, Therefore you have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment, for in that, in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself, for you who judge practice the same things. Now here he's talking to a different group of people. It's not the Gentile anymore, it's the Jew. And we know that because in verse 17 he tells us, But if you bear the name Jew. So chapter 2, he switched audiences. But you know what he's doing? The very same thing he did in chapter 1. He's knocking out these false hopes from underneath the Jewish person now in chapter 2. In the first 16 verses, he talked about judgment. And that every man, Jew and Gentile, are going to stand before God. And they will not escape this judgment. And it will be severe on those who have not repented. We went all through that a few weeks ago. In verses 17 to 29, he's going to talk about their false hopes. What are they hoping in? What, what is the basis by which they think they're going to be enter into eternity? What is their trust in? What's their confidence in? And so he's going to point out that what they are confiding in is not that which will stand. You see, the Jew would agree with Paul's assessment of the Gentiles in chapter 1. He would say, that's absolutely right, Paul. Those Gentiles are terrible. They're despicable. The things they do are, are unmentionable. They pass judgment on the Gentiles. But Paul says, you know what? You really do the same thing that they do. How do you think you're going to escape the judgment of God if you do the same thing that you condemn them for doing? Now, 
what Paul is going to do is take a look at their knowledge of the law and the right of circumcision and find out if, if that is sufficient, if that is a sufficient ground to stand before God. What would happen if I went to you and I said, you know that insurance policy that you just bought and you spent your life savings on? It's really a scam. Uh, that insurance company doesn't even exist. You think it does, but it's just a big scam. You'd probably get indignant, wouldn't you? Who do you think you are? What? How do you know this? I, and in fact, wh- why are you coming and telling me that? I felt so good and happy and cheerful before, and now I feel terrible. I mean, I'm starting to feel afraid. I'm starting to feel uncomfortable. You're filling me with this nervousness and anxiety. Who? Why are you doing this? Are you just being mean and cruel? Well, no. If it's really true that they spent their life savings on something that will not take care of them when they need it, I'm actually doing the most loving thing to them by knocking out that false hope from underneath them. Right? That's what Paul's doing. So that, so that you could then take whatever money you could amass and, and find another insurance company that would take care of you if you, if you died and you needed your family members to be supported. So, Let's talk about these two issues. First, the knowledge of the law, verses 17 to 24, and then the right of circumcision. Verse 17, but if you bear the name Jew, so there's no doubt in our minds, is there? He's talking to Jews. And you rely upon the law and boast in God and know his will and approve the things that are essential, being instructed out of the law. Now, let's just stop there at verse 17 and 18. Here Paul is telling us that these Jews that he was writing to knew, understood God's law. He said, you bear the name Jew and you rely upon the law. That means they rest in it. They rely upon it for their salvation. And they boast in God because they had the law. And they know his will and approve the things that are essential being instructed out of the law. So here are here are the words we need to focus on. Know, approve, and instructed. So they had gained instruction. They had been taught the things of the law. They understood them in their minds. But that wasn't going to be sufficient. They knew the law. In fact, little Jewish boys, by the time they were five years old or little girls, would have a lot of the Old Testament law memorized. Um, when Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, he tells him in verse 15, that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. So Timothy, now Timothy had a Greek father and a Jewish mother, but his Jewish mother had enabled him to know the sacred writings from childhood, and that, that word childhood could actually be translated infancy. From the time he was born, the parents would begin to teach their children the scriptures, the Old Testament. And um, so the knowledge of the law was a big part of Jewish religion. They would learn about the law when they went to synagogue. They would learn about the law from their parents every day as they would catechize them and teach them the law. So the Jews knew the law. They also knew that they were the only nation on the face of the earth that had the law. And that would fill them with this sense of superiority, pride, some self-righteousness. That's probably why they looked down their noses on the Gentiles. Because, hey, God 
loved us. God chose us. God gave us the law. Nobody else has it. We're special. And that can give a false sense of security and a false sense of hope to somebody. So first thing we need to know about the Jews is they knew the law. Secondly, they taught the law. Look at 19 and 20. Verse 19 says, And you are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature. Why? Because you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and of truth. So notice the words again. You are a guide, a light, a corrector, and a teacher. To who? To the blind, the one in darkness, the foolish, and the immature. Who do you suppose Paul was thinking about when he, he, he said that you are a guide to the blind, the foolish, the immature, the one in darkness? I think he's probably thinking about the Gentile. The one of, cha- the person, the heathen of chapter one, who all they had was the light of nature. They didn't have the light of scripture. And so the Jews, if they ever had an opportunity, would take the time and they would teach these Gentiles about God's truth in the law. They saw themselves as guides, correctors, teachers. So not only did they know the law, but they were teachers of the law. But the problem was, verse 21 and 22, they broke it. They knew the law, they taught the law, but they broke the law. Look at verse 21. You therefore who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that one shall not steal, do you steal? They say, well, how did they steal? How Were the Jews thieves? Remember when Jesus had the money changers in the temple and he said, my father's house should be a a house of prayer, but you've made it what? A den of thieves. They were charging exorbitant rates to change the money, the, the Roman money, into currency that could be used in the temple. And they were charging exorbitant rates for people to buy temple-approved animals that could be offered in sacrifice. They're making profit off of the people of God. Instead of the temple being a place where people would come to pray and seek God and worship God, it was a place for them to get rich by taking people's money. So they were committing a form of theft by overcharging the people. In Matthew 23, 14, Jesus says, Woe to you hypocrites, you um, you devour widows' houses. Do you remember that? You devour widows' houses. Now that's all that's said about that, but it, it tells us that in some way, these religious leaders were whittling their way Inside of these widows' homes, their husband has died. They, they have no one to take care of them. They have a house, and they're doing whatever they can to try to get, to take that house away from them through, you know, a slick attorney or whatever it happens to be. They're, I mean, it's despicable, isn't it? Here's a widow who has no way to support herself, and they're trying to take whatever she has left. So the Jewish people were not innocent when it came to, to robbery or to theft. They quoted the, the uh, Eighth Commandment, Thou shalt not steal, but they stole themselves. Verse 22 says, You say that one should not commit adultery. Do you commit adultery? Now, how were the Jews committing adultery? Well, to find out, we have to go to see what Jesus said in Matthew 19.9. 
So, Jesus said in Matthew 19.9, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for the immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. See, there are two schools of thought within among the Jewish rabbis, and there was one school of thought that said, you can divorce your wife for any reason you want, pretty much. She burns the meal, she uh, her skirts twirl in the wind, or whatever it happens to be. If she doesn't find any favor in your sight, you can divorce her. And so some Jews... Um, if they found somebody else that was younger and prettier or they fell in love with, would divorce their first wife and marry up with this next wife. Jesus said, if you do that, except for the cause of immorality, you're committing adultery. And the same would hold true today, wouldn't it? If people just up and divorce for an unbiblical reason, remarry, sounds to me like Jesus is saying that they're actually committing adultery in God's sight because they had no right to divorce their wife to begin with. So the Jews were committing adultery in that sense. Easy divorce, easy remarriage. Also, Jesus taught that even if you don't commit adultery physically, you can commit it in the heart if you lust after a woman. So, yeah, they were teaching the sixth commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery, but yet heart adultery took place, and actually real adultery took place because they were... Divorcing and remarrying when they had no right to do so. Now then he goes on to say, You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? So the Jews were taught that idolatry was a heinous crime against God. And it was. As you read through the Old Testament, you read over and over and over how God hates idolatry and how he would reprove his people when they committed idolatry. And so they would confess, we hate it. We have nothing to do with idols. But yet they would go into heathen temples and steal their idols. And they would either uh, make a profit on the silver or gold of the idols that they would get in those temples. In Acts chapter 19, verse 37, uh, Paul is in Ephesus, and there's this riot going on, and they bring Paul um, before the town clerk, and in Acts nineteen thirty-seven, it says, For you have brought these men here who are neither robbers of temples nor blasphemers of our goddess. Well, if it tells us they're, they're not robbers of temples, that tells me that probably there were some people who are robbers of temples. These people just happen not to be that. So why are you bringing them before me, is his case. So Paul's point here is that you condemn others, you condemn the Gentiles for these sins, but yet you practice them yourself. So they broke the law. Now, what was the result of their hypocrisy? They taught one thing, they did the other. What's the result? Romans 2, look at verse 23. You who boast in the law, through your breaking the law, do you dishonor God? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, just as it is written. What are the two results from their lifestyle? They dishonor God, and they blaspheme God. And that's where we're really getting to the issue here, because it has to do with God. By their lives, they were dishonoring God, blaspheming God. That's what Paul said the Gentiles were doing in chapter 1. He said that they did not honor God in chapter 1, verse 21. The Gentiles did not honor God. The Jews did not honor God. They dishonored God. God. See, Paul's very God-centered. Sin is essentially against God. 
That's why when we go out and we talk to people about the gospel, sometimes it's hard for them to understand what sin is. They think, oh, it's doing something bad. Well, that's true, but you're not getting deep enough. It's bad because it's against what God has said He wants you to do. You see, unless they understand their actions in relationship to the God that made them, they don't understand what sin is. And when you go deep into what sin is, at its root, it's dishonoring God. So that was the result of their hypocrisy. Blaspheming God, dishonoring God. God said that they ought to live one way, they live the other way. They blasphemed God because it caused the Gentiles to say, oh, well, your God must not be very holy then. If, 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 if you, you live this way and you say that you belong to God, see, it, it put a slur upon who God was in their minds. So what we see just right off the bat is the Jews had this false hope. They knew the law, and they taught the law, but they didn't keep the law. And you know, as Christians, or professing Christians, we can make the very same mistake. We can know God's Word. We can even teach it. Maybe you teach Bible study, Sunday school, your children. Not only do you know it, because you've been to church many times, you've heard it preached, You've read it at home. But does that mean that you're safe on Judgment Day because you know intellectually the contents of this book? Remember, the first I quoted from 2 Timothy 3, that from childhood you've known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. So the scriptures are to lead you to faith in Christ. That's where salvation takes place. But just carrying around a Bible or knowing a Bible or being able to quote verses from the Bible doesn't mean that you're saved. We can make the same mistake that the Jews made. We need to be real careful that our hope of heaven isn't in the fact that, well, I know John 3.16. I know that the gospel is that Christ died for sinners. I profess that he's my Savior Well, that's all well and good, but are you a real Christian? Do you have a relationship with Christ? A saving covenant relationship with Him? Are you united to Christ? Christ is your only real hope in the day of judgment. And if you're not vitally united to Christ, you'll be lost on that day. Christ is our life. He is our hope. He is the one by whom we can enter into God's presence and be accepted by the Father. And unless you have Him, you don't have a a well-grounded hope. Just like the Jews, you have a false hope. Make sure that you have a saving relationship to Christ. Not just that you know about Him, not just that you show up at church, but that Christ is your life. These people in Romans chapter 2 Knew the law, taught the law, but they didn't keep the law. They believed they were secure, but they were self-deceived. And many professing Christians are also self-deceived because they know the word, but they don't live the word, just like these Jews. They don't obey Christ. I mean, it's, it's aggravating. It's frustrating when you talk to people who say, yeah, I'm saved, I'm going to heaven, and you find out that uh, they're a drug addict or they're living with their girlfriend, 
Or, I mean, we see this all the time. <laughs> and it's crazy. You think you're going to heaven and you're living habitually in sin? What Bible have you been reading? What, 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 are, what Bible have you been reading? The Bible says that you will not inherit the kingdom of God. It doesn't say you will. It says, let no one be deceived with these empty words. He who does not practice the will of God will not enter. Jesus said, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. I never knew you. So these are the words of Christ. These are the words of Scripture. So we have to be careful. James one twenty two says, don't be just a hearer of the word. I'll read it to you. James one twenty two. Prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. Now what does it mean to delude yourself? What does that mean? Deceive yourself. James tells us it's very possible for you and I to deceive ourselves into thinking everything's okay. And especially is that true if you are a hearer of the word, but you don't do it. You show up for church, you hear the word preached, but you don't put it into action in your life. You don't apply it. You, you hear the preacher say something about what Christ wants you to do, and you don't obey. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So, do you love Jesus? It's easy to find out. Do you obey him? Do you keep his commandments? Of course, nobody does that perfectly. But that is the bent and direction of the Christian's life, is to obey Christ. So that's the first false hope of the Jew, the knowledge of the law. Let's look at the second one. It's the rite of circumcision. Verse 25 he says for indeed circumcision is of value if you practice the law but if you're a transgressor of the law your circumcision has become uncircumcision so if the uncircumcised man keeps the requirements of the law will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision and he who is physically uncircumcised if he keeps the law will he not judge you who though having the letter of the law and circumcision are a transgressor of the law now what was the popular Jewish opinion about circumcision in the first century. Basically, it was that if you were circumcised, you couldn't, you couldn't be cast into hell, you would go to heaven. I'll read to you the quote from Rabbi Joel Kut Rabin. He said, circumcision saves us from hell. The Midrash is a Jewish collection of interpretations of the Torah, which is the Old Testament law. In that Midrash, it says this, God swore to Abraham that no one who was circumcised would be sent to hell. Abraham sits before the gate of hell and never allows any circumcised Israelite to enter. Well, I don't know who that rabbi was who wrote that, but he wasn't reading his Bible either, <laughs> because there's nothing in the Bible that says that. But that was the common opinion of the day. If you're Jewish, you're special, you're chosen, you're one of God's chosen people, you're circumcised, you're part of his covenant, everything's good. But notice what he says in verse 25 to 27. What was the value of circumcision? He says circumcision is a value if, there's a big condition attached, if you practice the law. In other words, if you obey God. See, circumcision was an outward sign that a man had been marked out and belonged to God's covenant people. It's kind of like on a cow. They'll put a brand on that cow. It shows who the owner is, the property of so-and-so. Well, circumcision marked you off, branded you as God's man, God's property. You were separated unto God. 
But if a man didn't live for God, he didn't obey God, his circumcision was worthless. It was meaningless because it was not an outward symbol of an inward reality. It didn't mean anything anymore. And that's his point here in verses 25 to 27. He says the Gentile, if he's not circumcised but he keeps the law, God's going to regard him as being circumcised. And the Jew, who is circumcised, if he doesn't keep the law, it doesn't, it's not going to make, be of any benefit or value to him at all. So the issue, the whole thing, is circumcision is not the important thing. Obedience to God is what God is looking for. You see that in the text? God is looking for a man who loves him and from an overflow of love obeys him, keeps his commandments. So the problem was ritual without reality and the symbol without the substance. So I pray that none of us here would make the same mistake that these Jews were making. They were putting their hope and their confidence in a ritual. And they thought that as long as they had the ritual, everything was good. We make the same mistake with baptism. You talk to people and they say, well, I'm going to heaven because I was baptized and I joined the church and my name's still on the membership roll. They haven't been there in 15 years, but it's still on the membership roll, you know. And they put their confidence in some ritual that they went through. Or I observe the Lord's Supper, I, I, I take communion. You see, these rituals, that they're good rituals, but they're only good if, if they're the outward evidence that there's something going on by the Holy Spirit in our hearts. They're meaningless apart from that. So yeah, we can make the same mistake. Notice who a true Jew is, according to this passage. Have you ever wondered, okay, who's a true Jew? A real Jew. Verses 28 and 29. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor a circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from men, but from God. Now there's a bunch of contrasts here. He says, it's not external circumcision that makes a true Jew, it's an inward circumcision. He says, it's not circumcision that is performed by man that makes you a true Jew, it's circumcision performed by the Holy Spirit that makes you a true Jew. He says, and if you're a true Jew, your praise is not from men. You're not looking for man's praise, but you will receive praise from God. See, there's all these contrasts going on. And even in the Old Testament, this was taught. And we just finished up the book of Deuteronomy not too long ago. And in chapter 30, listen to what he says here. In Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants, to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, so that you may live. So even in the Old Testament, God says that there is a, a deeper circumcision than just the circumcision of the flesh. It's the circumcision of the heart. And that's the circumcision that I'm looking for. That's the circumcision that you need to have. Because if a person has the circumcision of the heart, they obey the Lord. They love the Lord. So when he tells us that in verse 28 and 29, what's he talking about? What is the circumcision of the heart? 
He's talking about the new birth. He's talking about, we, theologians call it regeneration. Being born again. That's when the Holy Spirit does a work upon the heart of a lost man and changes that heart. In fact, we read about that in Ezekiel 36. It's very, very clear there. I'll read it to you. Ezekiel 36, 25 to 27. Okay, listen to God's word. He said, Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Now here it comes. Moreover, I will give you a new heart, and I'll put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. Did you notice? <laughs> Did you notice the, that wording? I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. In other words, the obedience of the Christian is something that is impelled by the work of the Holy Spirit within him. A true Christian who's been born of the Holy Spirit can't go on living in sin day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year. He proves that he's lost. He proves that he's not regenerate if he lives that way. Because the Holy Spirit will cause him to walk in his statutes and walk in his ordinances. So this is a great definition of the new birth. God takes out the old heart, the heart of stone. A heart of stone is something that's unresponsive to God. It's just dead, it's cold, it's lifeless, it's totally unresponsive. And God replaces that heart with a new one. A heart that loves God. A heart that obeys God. And the reason it's changed is because the Spirit of God comes in. The Holy Spirit is the one that makes the difference. If He's not inside you, you're, you're still lost. The Spirit of God changes a person and makes him a brand new person. He circumcises the heart. You see, our hearts prior to coming to Christ were hard, crusted, calloused. I, I don't have calluses anymore, but when I played the banjo a lot, I'd have these really hard tips on my fingers. <laughs> calluses. And they, and so when I pressed down on the strings, they didn't hurt. Because they were hard. And that's what our hearts are like before we come to Christ. They're hard, unresponsive. And, and the Lord, by the Spirit, tears off that old, hardened part of our heart, and we become responsive and tender to God. We, we love Him. We want to please Him. We, we begin to desire to walk in His ways, and when we're disobedient, it bothers us. And we find that we have to repent of that, because the Spirit of God's not going to let us alone. He's going to be dealing with us day after day about that issue in our life. So, that's what a true Jew is. A true Jew is a true Christian. <laughs> uh, let's go to a couple other verses in the New Testament that make this clear. Uh, Philippians 3.3. 3. So, would you agree that the true circumcision is just another way of talking about a true Jew? Right? Well, Philippians 3.3 3 says... We are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. There's three marks of a true Jew. Number one, they worship in the Spirit of God. 
Number two, they glory in. That means they put all their confidence in Christ Jesus. Number three, they put no confidence in themselves, in their flesh. They have no hope of their own goodness or righteousness making them acceptable to God. And all of their hope, they're banking everything on Christ Jesus. They're glorying in Him. That's the true Jew, according to the New Testament. Or let's go to one other place, Galatians chapter 3, verse 7. Galatians 3, 7 says, Therefore be sure that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. Those who have faith in Jesus Christ are sons of Abraham. Or verse 29, If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to promise. A lot of times people will talk about, well, that guy's over there, he's a born-again Christian. As if there's more than one kind. Right? You've got born-again Christians and regular, ordinary Christians over here. Folks, there's only one kind of Christian. <laughs> you're either a born-again Christian or you're not a Christian at all. And to be circumcised of the heart is to be born of the Holy Spirit. So, their confidence was in an outward right, and God says that's not good enough. You have to have the inward reality. The Spirit of God has got to work on your heart to make you a new person on the inside. And my friends, if you've never experienced this that I'm talking about, this never rest until you until you know that you've experienced a new birth, that God has made you different on the inside. It doesn't matter if you go through the motions on the outside. You know, the, the church can make a really tragic mistake by trying to focus so much on the external. Like if we can just get people to stop smoking and stop drinking and stop taking drugs and stop sleeping around and start tithing and start going to church, then everything's good. Well, no, it's not. Because <laughs> what we could be doing is just making a bunch of hypocrites. People acting like what they're really not on the inside. Right? We're not into making hypocrites. We want to make new creations. And of course, we can't even do that. God has to do it. But that's what we want to see is new creations in Christ. So, my question to you this morning is, what is your hope of heaven? What are you basing your confidence that when you stand before God, He will accept you? If it's in anything else other than Christ and Christ alone, and your saving relationship with Him, you have a false hope. And the the, the sooner you knock that thing out from under your feet and come to Christ and be joined to Him in a living, saving relationship, the better off you're going to be. So please don't make a mistake here because it could cost you your soul for all eternity. In Christ alone, our hope is found. He is our light, our strength, our song. Amen. Lord, we look to you this morning as the only one that can save us, the only one that can redeem us. Lord, we are hopelessly lost. If we look to ourselves, we will never, ever find salvation, because we have, we do not have what it takes. We c- confess that freely. There is no confidence in our flesh. <laughs> We've seen what our flesh can do. Remember that Paul said that there's no good thing that dwells in our flesh. And Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. And we, we confess, Lord, we believe that. So we glory in Christ Jesus alone. Christ is our righteousness. Christ is our life. Christ is our redemption and our wisdom and our salvation. Lord, fill us again afresh with, with fresh faith 
in Christ as our only hope. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.